Get ready, Ohio. FanDuel America's number one sports book is coming to the Buckeye State. And to kick things off, you can get started with $100 in free bets as an early sign-up bonus. Plus, when you sign up today with promo code OHIOFD, you'll be all set when FanDuel goes live in Ohio. Then you can bet on all your favorite teams in all your favorite sports with $100 in free bets. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Ohio, this is your chance to get in on the action. Join today with promo code OHIOFD. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 or older and present in Ohio. Bonus issued in non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after FanDuel accepts its first real money sports wager in Ohio, 1123. Unique user identity verification required. Offer ends on the go-live date. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from RootMetric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement. Winning comes in all shapes and sizes. Every day there's an opportunity for a win, just like scratchers from the Virginia Lottery. Every day grab-and-go, every day giftable, every day fun. It's where anticipation meets instant gratification, and they're satisfying to scratch no matter the outcome. Like the new Virginia Lottery Scratcher Colossal Cash. It's loaded with $100 to $500 prizes. Now, that's an everyday win. Drive to the nearest Virginia Lottery retail location and pick up a scratcher today. Odds of winning any prize, 1 in 3.21. Welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick. Uh, joined here today by Jordan Coe of bsm jordan how you doing buddy good ken thanks for having me back on i appreciate it uh, we're, we're lucky to have you uh, jordan wrote a recent article about earl thomas and we wanted to get together and talk about earl and what he's providing the ravens right now because the ravens have some very difficult salary decisions coming up uh particularly on the defense i need to re- uh, recoup some cap for some big contracts that will have to be signed earl thomas's name naturally comes up in those discussions and also to talk about what he was doing you know, in terms of his on-the-field play last year. Uh, and, Jordan, I'll, I want to let you present this material and start off in the order you'd like to go, and I'll, I'll kind of respond to it as we go. Yeah, thanks, Ken. I appreciate that. You know, Earl Thomas was a guy that I really wanted the Ravens to sign as we headed into the offseason. Last year, he was a guy that I had kind of queued up as the perfect fit for what the Ravens needed. If there was ever a guy that somebody might say looked like Ed Reed, I think that Earl Thomas over the last kind of four or five years was one of the guys that was in that conversation. Um, And the Ravens had this huge need in free safety. Um, And it just seemed kind of like a perfect marriage if the Ravens were willing to kind of swallow a little bit of that injury risk. Um, And, and in that sense, I think it paid off for the Ravens and that, that Earl was mostly healthy. I think he was a, it took a little recovery when he first got here, but once that happened, you know, overall he was healthy, but um, he got a pretty, like you were just mentioning, a pretty fairly sizable contract from the Ravens up front. 
Um, and so I think, you know, it created, at least in, in some sectors of Ravens fans, created a little bit of a divide in terms of uh, what people were, you know, what people were expecting from him and, and, and kind of what they thought that they were going to get from him. He played 91.3% of the snaps as I count them uh, last year. That's going to be close to any other uh, percentage you might see online. So certainly didn't he came through on the health component of his uh, contract. One of the one of the interesting points was when they signed um, Thomas, they really had just lost the the Mosley directly, and they had another loss also. I'm trying to remember who that was. Like I guess it was Zadarius. Uh, in terms of a player they lost just in the last couple of days before Thomas was signed. Did it seem to you like it was their plan all along to get him, or they reacted to the loss of Mosley by going after Thomas? You know, that's a really good question. I, I don't know that it was reactive, but I think maybe maybe they, they had kind of plan A and plan B, and they knew that there was a chance that Mosley was going to get overpaid, and if that happened, Thomas was going to be the guy they went after. I don't, you know, I don't think Zadarius was ever in conflict with a potential signing of Earl other than making it work under the cap. Um, but I could definitely see how maybe the Ravens would feel like Mosley would have kind of filled that gap. And, and it would have been, thinking back to what the cap looked like at that point, probably pretty tough to fit them both under the cap for the type of deal that we were talking that about Mosley potentially getting at that point. Mm-hmm. Um. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, they, they did bring Thomas on, and, and I thought he performed really admirably, um, you know, more than admirably. I thought he performed really well. Um, but, you know, as I was on a week-to-week basis of, of watching this team, there were moments where I would just go absolutely berserk because for whatever reason, Earl Thomas was standing in the A gap or standing in the B gap or rushing the passer 10, 11, 12 times per game. Um, and, and particularly when the Ravens had Jefferson on the field, um, I thought that left them particularly vulnerable on the back end. Um, and so, you know, I, I really questioned whether or not that was his best usage. Obviously, you know, Wink had some idea of what he was going to do. Um, but, you know, having time to pass rush that much, that, that was a big question for me. Yeah, he pass rushed more in this last year, rushed the passer more than he had basically his entire career at Seattle. So it was a big shift. Now, the Ravens leaning on some great cornerbacks. Obviously, Wink had to blitz more with scheme based on who he had to win one-on-one battles last year. Very weak unit for winning one-on-one. Judon was about the only guy. Campbell should be a big help in terms of that this year, but they're still going to be very scheme-reliant, in my opinion. They're not the San Francisco 49ers who could just rush their best four and and get to a good amount. So... uh, you know, I understand, I think, a little bit of why they did it with Thomas. And Thomas, uh, I, I also asked the question, did, was Thomas still able to provide what he has in past years as a single high safety? And if that's not the case, was that part of the reason why they used him more as a pass rusher? Yeah, and if you look at some of, you know, uh, take pro football focus for, for what it is. I think they do um, a good job of at least being relatively consistent and putting their numbers out there, which everybody doesn't. Um, but they really liked his performance overall. And and from what I was seeing on on game film in particular, when when the play was in front of Thomas, I thought he was very effective. Um, and, and, and once he kind of settled into the system from that free safety position, I didn't really see any issues there. There were a couple... 
I think there was an interception maybe in the Rams game where just having him center in center field would on an overthrow turned into an interception because um, he was just standing in the right place at the right time. Um, and so I think I, I was mostly frustrated that, you know, it seemed like Thomas and Humphrey were two guys that you could just kind of leave in the backfield. And if you've got eight guys in front of you to tinker with, um, there's a lot of effectiveness that you can have with eight other guys. I get occasionally bringing Thomas or occasionally trying to see what they could do. Um, but, but I thought it was a little much. And, you know, when I dove into the numbers, um, you know, Thomas took 52 snaps on, on what was determined by pro football focus at the defensive line. Um, in the prior three years that he played in Seattle in 15, 16 and 17, he took, he took nine snaps um, equivalent in those mm-hmm. positions. So a six X markup in one season, um, you know, and then another 259 snaps in the box, which was again, twice as much as he did the entirety of 15, 16 and 17. Um, and so, you know, again, it, it's not that I didn't think that he was effective in that role. And I think that Wink did have to overcommit him in some way. If he was going to use him as a pass rusher, they had to do more than just flash him. Um, but I found that there were times where passes were kind of just getting sailed over Thomas's head um, and he wasn't going to have an impact on the play. And you've taken your, you know, best or second best playmaker in the secondary, I, I, maybe third best once Peters got here um, mm-hmm. out of the play in that sense. Yeah, I, I understand the point. So if if he could have had the same impact on the play on the back end, you would you would probably prefer to have him there. I, I don't think people realize just how impaired the Ravens pass rush was this last year. They got, they, they did so well by having Bowser and Judon at outside linebacker and both being able to drop like, like Sam's and, and to cover on a regular basis and, and basically at will. And, you know, made the point with Gabe, uh, you know, when we recorded last night that basically there are four man pass rushes and there are four man pass rushes. It's not just the blitzes. It's the scheme. It's it's the fact that you you drop two and rush two to get an overload, a free runner. That's what keeps the opposing quarterback jittery and from it from uh, from being unable to complete that short slant pass or the hot re- read he needs to make on third down. I mean, you need to get to the quarterback very quickly. That usually means a free run. Free runs aren't going to be had, generally speaking, by your four down linemen. And, yeah, definitely. You know, and, and, and there's a little push pull there with that. You know, I, I think if you go back and look at the Tennessee game, you know, are, are we allowed to talk about that yet? Or sure. Still too well, soon? Well, it's, it still hurts, <laughs> but we can go ahead. You know, if you go back and look at the Tennessee game, you know, I thought that they did a particularly good job of taking advantage of understanding when Thomas was in the box and, and being able to take shots over the top. Um, you know, I, I think that the problem became that the rec- there, there became a recognition that the Ravens would have to move Thomas into the box to get that deception. Um, and so they were willing to trade that free rusher to take a guy off the seam, for example, um, and on a double move, be able to turn that into a touchdown. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't know, you know, that was a one-off game. And I, I don't know that if we were, we're in a situation where, um, you know, if the Ravens have enough time to scheme and, and wink can adjust to some of this kind of stuff, um, that it'd be effective. But um, at the same time, I just wonder, you know, how much improvement that we could see, you know, overall. Now, when we talk about 2020, and, and I think you and Gabe probably talked a little bit about this when it comes to the secondary, they they're, have a real opportunity to be dynamic this upcoming year. And I think there's also a chance that installing the defense a little bit earlier and having 
all these guys back after playing 10 plus games with each other, or I guess a little bit less than that, um, that many games together last year, other than folding Tavon Young in, should allow for a little bit more communication, hopefully, and, and, and alleviate some of that as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the team is should be comfortable together. They have some guys on the front end who aren't necessarily the same place, like Campbell and Wolf are obviously new faces. But I think one of the interesting things is going to be to see how Deshaun Elliott can play center field when asked to. So they're going to rotate, and they're going to—they're either going to have a single high guy, one single high guy, or they're going to have two in the in when they have the dime on the field. Um, Elliott's role is going to be really important in in terms of of Thomas and Thomas's future this year in terms of doing some of the things that Thomas would otherwise be assigned to do next year, potentially in terms of taking his place. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I was a big fan of the Geno Stone edition in the draft. I think that he's a guy that he's going to make an impact on special teams. I, you know, when I watched, I, I was actually watching Ipanisa's film, um, and Geno Stone stood out to me in terms of the plays that he was making kind of across the board, both, both against the run and against the pass. So I think the Ravens are set up kind of to have a rotating other center field guy that can be back there. Um, you know, but the Ravens played a lot of cover zero last year, too. Um, and so, you know, it is just the case where, you know, and I think this is your your point of, of kind of four man pass rushes versus four man pass rushes where they were willing to overcommit and put everybody at the line of scrimmage, let everybody win on the outside and see what happened. And, I, you know, I have less issue with those kind of snaps overall. Yeah, they, 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 so, so much of what happened defensively in 2019 is probably specific to 2019 because of the uh, big leads the Ravens had, the special year it was in a lot of ways on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, you know, what happened after week four, we treat it, I think, correctly as a completely different season. You mentioned Jefferson's, uh, some of the mess ups he had in the early part of the year in terms of, of getting zone coverages blown. Uh, you know, once Clark got in there and and was regular, once they flushed the inside linebacker group that hadn't worked the first four weeks and got Fort and Bynes, this was an awfully good defense with an awful lot of different options on how to go, with the exception that they had to scheme for pass rush somehow. And, you know, they had that. They obviously they leaned on their coverage very effectively. They did that well. I think Thomas played well on the back end, but I think last year his game was more about fear than about the speed and ball skills that we'd seen before in his time at Seattle. Yeah, there was definitely a little bit of that. And he, he looked a little, he looked a step slow. I think it was what week, week four in the Cleveland game where um, Chubb made him look pretty ridiculous as he was chasing him a few different times. I think some of that was also positioning, you know, it's kind of like the the outfielder that that hasn't learned to track fly balls. I, I think there's a question of whether or not, you know, Thomas had some trouble getting routes to rushers um, from kind of the opposite angle that he was used to. And we might have seen that a little bit of that, plus the injury all worked in together. Um, you know, I don't know that I, I would say that I thought I, I would label him as playing with fear. Um, but I do think that that wink really they they really gave him the full playbook right away. and And I'm not completely sure that he was he was ready for that much playbook either. I, but to be clear, I meant fear. He, he, what he brought to the field a lot was fear to the opposing quarterback. Oh, they're, okay. That they're, they're <laughs> looking at him in center field and, and thinking fine 20 on every play, except it's fine 29 on every play and, and not throwing at him. The target numbers from PFF do not completely make sense for, for, for several mm -hmm. reasons. But, but one of one of the problems is when you're the back end player in a bracket, which will often happen to a single high safety, 
go figure. Um, you, they often will give it, assign the target to the underneath guy. When it's in, when it's when the, when the throw goes beyond the player, the the receiver, it's almost always an incomplete. So there's going to be a bias there to create good statistics for Thomas on the targets that PFF would assign to him. So I, I have I do question their methodology. I'm not saying that that uh, that Thomas and I'm not saying they're inconsistent about it either. By the way, they've probably done it that way for years. It just creates an advantage for single high free safeties, and uh, it's something that that I don't. I don't discount what Thomas did on the back end. I just don't think what he did on the back end was really special this last year. There's still an indication that they're not really testing him deep middle of the field, and that's what you want out of your free safety largely. Yeah, you know, I think an interesting question. There were there were some rumblings. I, I, I guess it had to be before week five where Thomas was very frustrated that um, – the guys on the underneath weren't trusting him and that they were overplaying their coverage and kind of re-exposing things underneath and not releasing guys to the second level to him mm. when he needed to defend it. I, I think Jefferson in particular, I, and it, uh, you know, I can't remember who, who published it. I, w- I want to say it was in the Baltimore sun. That's, that's my hunch. But Thomas had, had come out and basically said that he said that these guys have to, they have to trust me. I'm an all pro. They need to release these guys into my zone and know that I'm going to, I'm going to be able to pick up my guy and that I'm kind of positioning and doing things appropriately for what that's going to look like as well. Um, so I think that's an interesting overlay to what might happen with Harrison and queen. I think Fort and, and Thomas played a little bit together. So they'll have uh, some of that synergy together. Um, but in some senses, I think that you'll see Thomas having to take a bigger role um, if they leave him more in that free safety spot when you've got guys underneath that have not played as much um, at the NFL level. I mean, if you want to talk about this first four weeks again, uh, what happened to Owasso, what happened probably to a lesser extent because he played less to Kenny Young during those first four weeks, I mean, they got embarrassed and they got embarrassed on the same routes. Anything over the middle behind them, they really, neither of them read, reads routes and, and how the route tree is going to develop the way Mosley did. You know, that's obviously going to be very difficult. Mosley is outstanding. But it meant that Thomas would have had more responsibility in those situations. And quarterbacks, I think, were, were finding that open spot over the linebackers too regularly. If that isn't Thomas's spot, I don't know whose it is. <laughs> so, you know, if he's if he's really going to complain that people didn't release their routes properly, if anything, the the, the complaint would have been um, they released them too early or they had no idea of what was going on immediately behind them and were allowing completions. But, you know, obviously there's 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 two different things that one thing that Thomas is probably discussing and another thing that I'm complaining about with regard to these two inside linebackers that, you know, they're getting beat on any kind of crosser that goes behind them. And Thomas is saying, well, you know, when I see a vertical route, I want him to, to release to me at a certain point. Yeah. I think there's definitely a little bit of a mix of both. And I think, you know, I think Thomas had a little bit of a hard time adjusting to the Ravens locker room when he first got here. I mean, mm-hmm. also in the Cleveland game, there was the scuffle between he and Brandon Williams um, early in that game because Williams wasn't going to play um, and was a late scratch. And he was frustrated about that, um, you know, which given his injury history, I, I kind of thought was interesting. Thomas is one of the most fascinating parts I thought about watching Earl Thomas last year is he was one of the most not vocal is not the right word because you can't hear him, but he was most the most visibly excited or agitated when a play went really well or really poorly anywhere on the field um, of, of a Raven. I've seen it in a long time since Ray Lewis, really. <laughs> um, 
But I think he had some. Uh, he had a hard time settling in early, and I don't know if that was the playbook. I don't know if that was personalities. I don't know if that was the losses, frankly, um, early on as well. But it did seem like it did seem like there was some meshing issues potentially with Thomas to begin with. Yeah, I, I, you know, they they brought him, and I thought he was kind of being brought in as a leader. But if that's not who he is, then that's not who he is. If he wants to be a quiet guy on the back end, but there are a couple things there that that pointed out. You mentioned one of them. The Brandon Williams scuffle is a, is a strange one. Obviously, the Ravens really miss Brandon Williams whenever he's not on the field. We know in terms of the run defense that it's gone. I, I am really scared going into this year without Michael Pierce, how that might change. So the, the pressure is going to be on more on Brandon Williams to provide the be the big plug in the middle. With regard to um, the other thing he said that was odd, good, but odd, is that why did they sign me? They have Chuck Clark. Well, we found out how good a leader Chuck Lark was in the secondary, how intelligent he was, and and you know what he was doing uh, down the stretch to align that defense, and and everything got picked up with Clark. He's, I mean, there's he's right in a sense. I don't know if Clark is going to be the back end free safety or can ever be the back end free safety. Thomas is now even, but uh, boy, that he was he was certainly a great find during the year. And it just kind of goes to show you, I mean, there, there's one thing I, I kind of like about that one. I don't the one I don't really like conflict between teammates where it seems like blame is being assigned from one or the other, not accountability. That's not really what I'm talking about. I'm really talking about why the, why the hell didn't you play this time? That I just don't find that as useful. Obviously he made that decision before the game. He doesn't want to be second guessed on it afterwards. It sounded like from the, from the sound of it, it's a, since it's not an injury, it was a discomfort thing. There are two things that immediately come to mind with that. And that one is hemorrhoids and the other is gout. Either it could be either of those things. It could be something else entirely that, that, that is, you know, just uncomfortable for a time being. But whatever the case, I mean, obviously for Brandon Williams, he didn't sit that game out on purpose. But, uh, you know, I, I, I don't like that kind of conflict anyway in, in, in the clubhouse. Well, it's interesting if you look at Thomas's history with the Seahawks, he wasn't the vocal leader. You know, he was obviously a very critical fulcrum point of the Legion of Boom um, in terms of what he did and, and kind of taking away the middle of that field. But he wasn't the guy that was kind of vocally out there and, and wasn't the guy that people talked about in terms of the locker room. And, and even, you know, Ed Reed for I mean, God love Ed Reed. Right. When we can start there. But, you know, everybody recognized Ed Reed's presence in the locker room and what he brought to the team beyond what he was also doing on the field. Um, and players talked about that at that time and beyond. Um, and I don't follow the Seahawks incredibly closely, but I never got the feeling that it was something in particular that the Seahawks felt like Thomas was bringing to to them either. And, and maybe that was why they were willing to let him go a little bit. And maybe he is just kind of one of those guys that has a different personality overall, too. Yeah, I mean, I th you, you could you could certainly say Ed Reed was that. I mean, I I think Ed Reed did bring something in terms of leadership. It's a very different type of leadership. It's right. almost a, a a you know we need to have a trust me uh, locker room. But Ed Reed was not a leader by example in terms of when he would practice. You know, Harbaugh when he first showed up, I went to an event at the castle, and Harbaugh says he practices when he wants to practice, and then he kind of giggled at the end of the statement. It's like, that's not a good thing, you know? And, you know, obviously if Ed Reed wasn't Ed Reed, he's the kind of player who might've ended up in Harbaugh's doghouse over that. You know, Suggs is a different type of leader, extremely uh, loud and funny at practice. And I think always kind of letting people get loose. And then you got 
Ray is a different kind of leader, obviously, entirely. And, and Yanda, a different kind of leader still in terms of, you know, being a, a, a leader who tries to put other players ahead of him is how I look at him in terms of the treatment of Lamar Jackson, particularly this last year. Uh, I, just, there's different types of leadership, but I, honestly, I don't think that's what they got from Thomas last year. I, I would not say that, you know, he was uh, the leader of the secondary in, in really any meaningful sense. Yeah, um, and, and I think there's an interesting question coming up this year for the Ravens defense overall about kind of who is going to be that leader for them. You know, a lot of the the voices that, you know, historically have been there have gone, and it didn't really feel like they had a voice or a guy that took that spot during the season last year either. I would have said Clark, but you yeah. know, he's, a, he's a defensive signal caller now, and he's supposed to be the brightest guy in the DB room. Yep. That's a hell of a place to start. Now, admittedly, he's he's got a lot of guys to manage. He's got to manage up effectively. You know, this is a guy like the really talented actuarial student who has a kind of a lazy boss, and you have to manage up here. It's a it's a uh, uh, a difficult <laughs> situation for him. But he's he's got his contract now. He's got his security, and he'll be around for a while as the Ravens signal caller. And I think he'll be able to to basically lead these other players, even though Peters is certainly a free spirit. He wants to be himself on one side. Marlon Humphrey, you know, is probably the best player of the group. If you looked at him individually. Uh, so it's a, it's a, and you know, Jimmy Smith is Jimmy Smith too, for that matter. So we'll see how that, uh, how that plays out. Yeah. Calais Campbell should be an interesting band. Because also. Breaking up a little yeah, bit on here. Fans of Jacksonville and fans of um, uh, Arizona might disagree about what it seemed like Campbell was, but he definitely seemed like the quiet leader type overall as well. Um, so th they've got a lot of guys that, that fit into that bucket this upcoming year. Yeah, it, it, that should be good. And hopefully it, it, it's it's rare that a team will have too many leaders because the, the, the non-alpha leaders or the alpha minus leaders will back off and and, and just follow in a situation like that. But Campbell does seem like the most, the most logical player to get in the middle of that huddle to start the game and get him, get him fired up. Uh, he certainly is, a, a you know, had the NFL man of the year, whatever Walter Payton award he won that, right? Yeah. Okay. So it, it, it does make sense. I think from that perspective, anything else about Thomas though, in terms of uh, what he was doing in terms of a coverage pass rush or any other standpoint you want to talk about? Yeah, you know, I I I know Wink loved to rush him as a pass pass rusher, and they they were they were determined to get him a sack by the end of the year. I think it was at about week ten or week eleven that they they started talking about it pretty much all the time, um, and and they were relentless about it. But I, I also thought his form as a pass rusher and his effectiveness, unless he was the free rusher, was essentially kind of taking him you know out of that play. Um, and, and so, you know, I'm really curious to see how Wink deploys this defense this upcoming year. I mean, he's got a lot more to work with in terms of his four his four pass rushers um, and what he can do generically. And I'm really interested interested to see if the Ravens go into more of a base cover three um, that they try and utilize more regularly with Thomas. Um, I thought he was really effective as a deep free safety. I think we agree on that. Um, you know, I, I don't think we got a good look at him kind of either playing robber or working his way down from free safety. He was playing most of that on those snaps coming back. Um, and I think that, you know, I think that was comfortable with his snap history. Um, so I'd say he was less effective there. But I also, you know, again, not something that I, I would necessarily put directly ahead his feet. 
Yeah. Um, lots of things to react to there, but I, 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 some of it I'm just going to let go. I want to point to the yak in particular as being something that he did a good job on. You mentioned him keeping the play in front of him. I thought he did do a good job of that. Did not allow a touchdown all season, at least as PFF assigns the targets. I think that's probably correct, too. But one of the big things is he really didn't allow any yak on the on the plays on the throws he did allow to be completed. Uh, so that that's a that's obviously a very positive thing for a free safety in particular because they are very yak vulnerable when they do allow a, a, a completion. It's usually a deep throw, and they either have to make a tough tackle where they have to angle to the sideline and push a guy out of bounds who's beating them on a crosser maybe in front of them, or they have to you know try and make a tackle very quickly on a, on a player who's just caught a deep pass, and and you know the the thirty yard play can become a sixty yard play pretty quickly. Yeah, the Ravens seemed to have a couple of those last year, but it didn't seem to be Thomas being the victim kind of when any of those broke down. Um, but again, you know, I, I think some of that is, is circumstantial, you know, in terms of how often he would, would have been put in a position to, to be defending that situationally as well. As a pass rusher, they, they I think he got a sack and a half last year was into what he ended up with. He had another one, if I recall, uh, taken away by penalty so he would have ended up with two and a half sacks uh that's a little something uh it's it's not uh it's not everything but it's also enough to tell you that they're getting some value out of him as a pass rusher when when he's doing that i thought he also had a leaping pd as a pass rusher as well kind of an odd do you remember it i do remember it i do remember it (laughs) i think that was I, i i remember the play you're talking about um, he had a and he had a couple attempts like that where he was definitely jumping at the line of scrimmage or kind of making plays at the quarterback in that sense. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I don't mean to put this in 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 a way that I think that Earl was was bad in that role. Um, I just question the overall kind of effectiveness of that. And I'm curious to I'm really curious to see what Wink does um going into this year, both in terms of kind of base package and then creativity from the blitz, which he's phenomenal at. Um, and, and kind of where that comes from this upcoming year. Well, if he's been extremely restrained in terms of rushing the outside corner. So I think we can say that those guys will not rush. Now, we know Jimmy Smith had a sack on a double outside corner blitz against the against the Rams. That's one of the most unusual plays I've ever seen. The Ravens were way up in the game. I don't consider that to be a good representation of what might come. It's more a representation of what he wants you to think might come. Uh, so... But, other than that, nine guys rushed the passer, and that was a lot of what we saw from uh, from Humphrey as a pass rusher was when he was on those slot snaps. He wasn't rushing really from the outside, and I don't have a problem with the slot corner blitzing. That's part of the Ravens' DNA. It's part of how the way they've always played defense, even during the Pease era. What I what I kind of question, and and I think you're saying too, is should we get away from what Eric Weddle was doing in the last year in particular that he was here? And using him more as a pass rusher and a rotational guy, Thomas does not have communication responsibilities on this defense. He does not have to communicate anything. Weddle did. Weddle had the helmet for a fair fair amount of time, and he had to communicate things up closer to the line of scrimmage. But you know, the last play of 2017, they got badly burned by Weddle being not in the best position. Whether that is his fault or Dean Pease. Yeah, I thought Weddle played a lot of hero ball as things as his athleticism slid. He he started mm-hmm. to guess more and more and, and take shots and teams saw him doing that and took advantage of it. Um, 
the slant to Odell Beckham for the touchdown in the Giants game comes to mind. It was a play that they had run maybe 10 plays earlier, um, and they baited him right into it, um, and, and it led right into a touchdown. So, you know, I, I think once you see guys start to see their athleticism, athleticism erode a little bit, you see them start to cheat a little bit. And so, you know, I think that that lends itself to saying Thomas should, if he's really great in that back middle third, you know, let him sit back there, let him watch the plays, let them develop. And, and even if he is just a very good to low end, great free safety in that regard, um, I think that that'll vastly improve what the Ravens are doing on the back end of the defense, even over what we saw last year. OK, so you mentioned earlier the possibility of moving to more cover three and obviously cover three. For, for those who don't know, you, you, you would if you have seven guys in coverage with the Ravens won't always have seven, you'll have four front three back. And so you, you designate who your three back are, and you have various choices on how that'll do, but it's often cornerback, free safety, cornerback uh, that'll be the three back players on the outside. Something that Peters has experience with. I, I, you know, I thought I had heard that he didn't really like playing that with the Rams. He felt like that, that reduced his own ability to gamble within that system. But in any case, is, is your comment on that related to the fact that Thomas would be better given a slightly smaller area and his current speed in terms of very much dominating that area. So that becomes a red zone for the opposing quarterback and instead of more of his area, more responsibility than becoming a yellow zone. Yeah, I think it's it's the former. I think it's that, that Thomas can take away that deep middle third. I think that, uh, you know, P- Peters didn't play with a lot of coverage behind him in the Ravens defense last year. So I, I think we're in a situation where Peters is going to do what Peters is going to do. And if he gets burned a couple times, he's going to get burned a couple times. Um, and, and that's just going to happen. Um, but I think that between the th- the other thing that you do is you, you give your back third to your three best players right in the secondary. And, and you say, you know, try and beat these guys that we have up front, you know, make them play in front of them, make them take shorter stuff. Don't let them take those deep shots um, and, and let your three best guys in the deep secondary do their thing. So it's a little bit of a combination of, I think Thomas would be best at free safety almost exclusively, but I also think that the alignment of the three guys that you would be having play back there together could be really dynamic and really effective kind of as a trio. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I mean, one of the things that you want to have when you go to cover three is you want to have, as much in the way of ball skills, one, two, three, across that back end, because those guys will get to come up and make plays. And so Thomas, I think that, you know, they get that in terms of the ball skills. I think you certainly get it with Peters, although I'm not sure you're not impairing what ball skills he can otherwise put into play by being an island corner or a, a corner who constantly is making the right gambling judgment on whether to go for the pick six or, or you know, risk versus risking the completion. And then on the other side, you've, you've got presumably to start the season, at least you have Humphrey there with with no Tavon with Tavon playing the slot and uh, Humphrey, not the ball skills, although he's tremendous at at attacking the football with those baseball bat like arms of his. He's, he's, he's not been so far the ball skills player that Peter's been overall. I think it's plenty of a good unit to play cover three and, and, and take advantage of, of what the cover three scheme would allow them to do. I'm just not sure that, that the Ravens want to take away from what Peters can do and also give up what they would have to in terms of pass rush flexibility to do it. Yeah, and the Ravens could also go, you know, quarters is something that the Ravens are very familiar with. And kind of conceptually, that's instead of having three guys on that back end, you've got four guys on that back end and, and, and bring some flexibility. It allows you to 
cheat a little bit more on the outside guys because they know they have the, those lanes and depth have a little bit um, more protection back there. You know, obviously the problem with quarters is then you're you're leaving your middle linebackers who are a pretty young group coming into this year a little bit more exposed than they traditionally were. Um, you know, the Ravens were very good in quarters. You know, obviously with with Ray Lewis and and a lot of those guys that they had playing in the middle. Um, so I don't know that I don't know that. I, I would be hesitant to say that Martindale would go directly to that. But again, I think to your point, the effectiveness of both Peters and Humphreys might be a little bit better um, in, in a quarter situation rather than a cover three. Yeah. I, I, Peters uh, did not show any problem. And this, I was surprised by this, but did not really show any problem covering when the player left the boundary. And, and you know, with a player like him, who's, who's, He's all about ball skills and less about speed for a, for a corner, okay? Not a great change of direction guy, but he knows exactly when he wants to change direction, exactly what he wants to show the quarterback. What, what, what I haven't, what I was surprised to see, for instance, was the great play against Buffalo that won the football game to stay with John Brown and, and then tip the ball away. Uh, what I'm not surprised to see is what he did to Wilson, although it was fun, you know it was great to see it for the first time as a Raven, and then what he did to Ryan Finley against the Bengals a, a couple of weeks later, or maybe it was the next week, I'm not sure. Uh, just very impressive uh, in that regard. But I, I question a little bit about the uh, the Ravens' outside guys in terms of their pure their raw speed and and uh, and what they bring and whether or not they need help. We have not seen too much in the way of bracket coverages on the outside the last few years from the Ravens, though. Yeah, and it, it's not something that they have to do. But, you know, it, like I said, I, I'm really intrigued to see what the Ravens do in their base defense this year, or, or even if they have a base defense. You know, I think historically, as you've covered the last year or so, uh, the Ravens have a, a base defense that they, they never really use. <laughs> yeah. And then they move to, to other looks. And, and they have the ability to be flexible like that. So they're going to be a lot of fun to watch this year, not just from the performance on the field, I think, but for those of us that really enjoy kind of the chess match of what we're seeing from the the defensive coach. And, and I think that we're going to, we're going to be in for a treat this year in terms of stunts and, and all kinds of different things that we're oh, going to yeah. do. going to be fun to count those. I can tell you the, the, uh, uh, the base defense, they played 10.6% of the time last year, <laughs> as, as you mentioned, it's really the nickel that is the base in the NFL. And, and I always point this out to people, but I have to bring it up once in a while here is that, you play nickel because the offense plays you nickel, not because you choose to play play nickel necessarily. So if the offense puts three wide receivers on the field, they're said to force the nickel. You don't really have a choice. You have to you have to put three corners on the field if they put three wide receivers on the field. And since most offensive coordinators like to run out of eleven personnel like that, they really prefer to deny an extra heavy to the defense than to have an extra heavy blocker themselves. Yeah, they prefer to run against run with eleven. Tavon Young's going to be an interesting guy to watch. He was so good his rookie year, and then kind of up and down. I'd say, you know, when he's been healthy, and then and then obviously not healthy altogether in a few other years. But um, he, he carries a little bit of an X factor. I'm sure you and Gabe probably talked about this on, on your podcast, but a little bit of an X factor coming into this year too, because I I thought he was a tremendous edge blitzer from the nickel spot. Um, you know, back when he was healthy. Yeah, he's he's. One of the best slot corners in the world in at, in the league at his top at the top valuation of him, and the Ravens probably more than any other player on the team they need him to be in there being an effective slot corner. Uh, they could even you know you'd hate to see either Humphrey or Peters go down, but if Tavon was actually effective, he'd be probably more valuable than either of those players to the Ravens. 
because he allows the others to play in their natural positions on the outside. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that, too. All right. Anything else about Thomas while we're here, though? Because this is an Earl Thomas show. It's cool. Whatever organic discussion comes up, this is uh, <laughs> this is fine, of course, Jordan. But uh, uh, Earl Thomas, anything more? Yeah, I, I think he's in for a big year. I, I, I think that Wink is, you know, I, I think that they, they kind of, I'd say there was a little bit of square pegging to the, the round hole, so to speak, last year. Um, and I think that Wink's going to find some adjustments there. Um, and I think that the defensive talent level is obviously up across the board. And I think that Earl Thomas is the perfect kind of guy to be, to take advantage of when there's better talent in other places, whether that's mistakes from quarterbacks or more time or ability to do some more baiting um, like he has done historically in his career. And I think we're going to see a big year from him um, this upcoming year. Let's hope so. Let's hope we have football to have Thomas have a big year. In fact, I'd almost take a very average year out of Thomas if we knew we'd have the year. (laughs) (laughs) Can't disagree with that. All right. Well, Jordan, a pleasure having you on as usual. Uh, Tell folks where they can read your writing generally. Yeah, Ken, they can find me at baltimoresportsandlife.com. Um, I write some articles there and also am, uh, have a podcast with Gabe Ferguson um, called The Bank. So we'd love to for you guys to check us out. And I'm also at BSL Jordan Co. on Twitter. Make sure you give that podcast a, a shot. Jordan and Gabe are both guys I like to have on the show and guys I'll have on during the regular season to talk offense or defense because they they uh, uh, evaluate things at a very high level and I trust their judgment and I, I love to talk football with them. So make sure you give their podcast a, a shot. Uh, for those of you who want to be on Film Study, just give me a, a DM on Twitter if you have an idea for a Film Study short, just something you like to talk about, you're passionate about. If you've done some research, that's fantastic. But uh, I'm always interested in having somebody with a with a good opinion or even a strong opinion uh, on the show. Thanks well, very much. I appreciate. For, yeah, I appreciate it, Ken. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here, Jordan. And we'll talk to you next time on Film Study. Birdland Sports. For fans, by fans. Find more great shows like this at birdlandsports.com. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from RootMetric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement. Winning comes in all shapes and sizes. Every day there's an opportunity for a win, just like scratchers from the Virginia Lottery. Every day grab-and-go. Every day giftable. Every day fun. It's where anticipation meets instant gratification. And they're satisfying to scratch no matter the outcome. Like the new Virginia Lottery Scratcher Colossal Cash. It's loaded with $100 to $500 prizes. Now, that's an everyday win. 
Drive to the nearest Virginia Lottery retail location and pick up a scratcher today. Odds of winning any prize, 1 in 3.21. Save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big- 